Hi there, I'm Dan Jones. Welcome to the podcast. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, UK. And on this podcast, I have long format informal conversations with folks whose work intersects with climate in some way. I'm coming to you this week from San Diego. I'm here for the AGU Ocean Sciences Conference, which is kind of starting tomorrow. It's kind of already started. There are some kickoff events and things happening. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It's always great to see many of the, the people that uh, I've gotten to know over the years, uh, researchers and professors and uh, you know, students and the, uh, the, the community. It's, it's my people, right? <laughs> it's my, my, my lovely nerdy community that I like very much. So it's going to be great, great to see you all. Um, I know some of you are here. Some of you are going to be either coming into San Diego today, or maybe you're already here. So I, uh, I look forward to seeing a lot of you around. The, uh, I am a, a bit of an introvert in the way that I really enjoy spending time with, with people, especially my science nerd oceanography friends. But, uh, well, I'm sure I'm not, I'm not alone in this, but at some point I know uh, my batteries get drained. I need to go away and recharge, and I need to go spend some time by myself at some point uh, before I can really jump back in the fray and feel really excited about seeing everyone and, and feel very open and and uh, so I know at some point, I don't, I don't know when it's going to happen during the week, but at some point I might have to kind of pull back a little bit and maybe go hide, hide somewhere and have some alone time and just recharge my batteries so that I can jump back into it. Because uh, these weeks are so, so busy. Uh, I'm kind of trying to prepare for it all today. You know, once they start, you're in it. You know, it's just meeting after meeting, session after session. You're running into people, uh, the poster sessions. There's, you know, events in the, the evenings. So it gets very full on. Uh, but it's good. It's, it's, it's a good, good week. Uh, looking forward to it. Looking forward to seeing you all. And um, it's sunny. It's sunny and bright. And it's already getting kind of hot a little bit. It's in the morning. I'm recording this in the morning of the Sunday that I'm putting the episode out. So that's a nice change of pace uh, coming from, you know, I mean, Cambridge actually is okay in terms of sunshine, but it's been, it's been cold. It's been cold and windy. So it's nice to have a little, a little break from that. Okay. Yeah. So this episode, I'm really happy to present it to you. I'm really excited to, to share this because I had a great conversation with Professor Elizabeth Barnes. She sometimes goes by Libby Barnes. You may have heard her referred to as Libby. She's a professor out at Colorado State University, which is actually where I did my PhD. In fact, she has my advisor's old office. She was kind of coming in as my advisor and his group were uh, relocating, going to Georgia Tech. So we, uh, she works in... I can tell you a little bit about her research interest, although we, we really dig into it a bit more on the on the, in the conversation in the podcast. She studies atmospheric vari- variability on a range of timescales and in different climates, large-scale atmospheric dynamics, sub-seasonal to seasonal prediction of extreme events, atmospheric mixing and transport, and the influence of atmospheric circulations on air quality and human health. And specifically, I wanted to talk to her about this geophysical research letters uh, article that came out in 2019 called Viewing Forced Climate Patterns Through an AI Lens. So we dig into that paper a little bit, but we have a broader, more general conversation about the role of artificial intelligence um, in, well, actually, how, how are we going to use artificial intelligence and machine learning 
in our field in the future? What are some of the things we're doing with it? It's, it's all relatively new stuff for us, for our atmospheric and oceanic community. So we're still trying to come to terms, kind of come, come to grips with what is it that we can do with this set of tools? And uh, so Livy Barnes is absolutely one of the pioneers on that front. She is one of the people who is at that boundary figuring out what are the new things we can do with this, with this tool. So, yeah, it was, a, it was a really great conversation. We did record remotely. We recorded over the phone. And uh, that's that. I think it came out all right, actually. It sounds like a phone call. Certainly, my, my end also sounds like a phone call. Her, her audio actually sounds better than mine, interestingly. Um, maybe she has a cooler phone than I do. But uh, it sounds like a phone call, but it's, I think the audio quality came out all right. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to present that to you. But before I get to that... Uh, just really briefly wanted to offer a little bit of encouragement to anybody who might need it. Uh, I don't know if you need to hear this or not, but I just wanted to remind everybody that uh, failure, when you fail, when something doesn't work, when something doesn't happen the way you want it to, when you get that rejection, uh, it, it hurts, right? It, it's not a great feeling. It's, uh, I mean, maybe you're better at dealing with it than I am, but if the rejection is big enough, uh, I, I need some time to recover from it. I need, need a little space from it. I, I back away. I do something else. I you know, switch activities and then to, to just try to give my, my emotions a little time to work through it. But failure, when something doesn't work, it's a sign that you're really in it. It's a sign that you're doing the work. You're in the arena. You've got the blood and sweat and tears you know, on your face. It's, it's a sign you're really participating in it. Whatever it is you're doing, you know, failing is a sign that you are, you're in it. Uh, you are trying and you are meeting it. You, you are there. So I hope that... Um, I hope that if you have had any kind of recent failures or setbacks, I hope that you're able to see those uh, in that land. It's, it, it changes the way you see it a little bit, right? It still hurts. It's still not a great experience, obviously, to, to fail at something, but it's a sign that you're really doing it. You're really putting the work in. And if you feel like that, if you feel like you're really doing it and putting the work in, you should, you should be proud of that, even if it's not working out the way you want it to. Okay. So... Yeah, maybe you needed to hear that, maybe not, but I just um, thought it would, would be nice to say. So, yeah, okay, I've been talking a little while. Why don't we just go ahead and get into the episode with uh, Professor Elizabeth Barnes, and I will see some of you around here in San Diego this week, around here at AGU Ocean Sciences. Um, oh, uh, she's not on Twitter, but you can find her, uh, Professor Barnes, on the Colorado State University website. You can find her email there. I don't think she's on Twitter anyway. Um, uh, at least I didn't didn't find her when I was looking. So uh, you know what? I'm going to pause this and just double check that. Hold on. I'll be right back. Okay, I'm back. I was wrong. I was wrong. She is on Twitter. Elizabeth A. Barnes, PhD. Her handle is at Atmos Barnes. So A-T-M-O-S and then her last name, Barnes. And there you can find a link to her website. Um, you can find... Looks like, yeah, she's she's tweeting a little bit. There's some there's some stuff on there. Good. Okay. So yeah, you can look her up there on Twitter if you'd like to stay up to date with her science activities and whatnot. Okay. Here we go. So let's get into this conversation with Professor Elizabeth Barnes. Hello. Hi, Dan. Hi. Hey, yep. Can you hear me? Okay. 
I can, yeah. I can hear you okay, and it seems to be recording. Um, how are things in, in Fort Collins? You know, they're okay. We're, we're, when winter really hits, it's pretty nice here, but right now it's in like the 40s, so it's the, the slushy March weather happening in December, so... You know, it's it's sort of blah today, but um, otherwise, I mean, I can't complain about too much where I live. I love where I live. So I always sit here, you know, I always tell people one of the worst things about where we are in my mind is that we are so far from the airport. We have to drive an hour, you know, and then people remind me that even when we lived in New York, we still had to go an hour to get to the airport. So you know, life is good. Uh, yeah, I love Fort Collins. I was there for a, a couple of years. Right. Like I mentioned to you. Um, I was there on the fourth floor, Office 404. Office oh, okay. Yeah, that's part of my group. I know that office very well. Yeah, and you had mentioned oh. like Taka was, I, I, I stole Taka's office, which is amazing. <laughs> Lucky me. It is. So, yeah, like you said, very sunny, very spacious. So, so nice. And actually, I was always surprised because Dave Thompson was in that middle office. And, mm. and Taka's office was empty for two years. And I kept saying, you know, when I get there, Dave, I'm going to take it, you know, and uh, he said he was too lazy to move. So I think I won that, that, uh, that battle there. Um, I'm not moving. So. No, so he had a chance. He passed it up, but he didn't want to move all his books over. Or whatever. Yeah, no, we're very lucky. And actually as a graduate student, I was on the top floor of my building then too. So I feel like some, somebody's decided that, you know, my type of people get to go on the, in the, in the suite and in the penthouse, so I'll take it. And you've got a nice view of the mountains. It's kind of, yeah. you know, mountains, plains on the other. And exactly, and the Wyoming side is just so beautiful, especially in the morning, so. Yeah, definitely. It's a special place, the little campus up on a hill, kind of out by itself. Yep. I mean, I think some people, when they visit, are first a little, I mean, I tell them straight up, yes, I realize this looks a bit like the boonies, and in a way it is, but it's gorgeous. And really, when you get to that hill, it's it's thriving with activity. So you don't feel like you're out in the middle of nowhere. So in my world, it, it's it's the best of everything. Um, but yeah, obviously not for everybody's liking, of course. Well, you got to bring your lunch. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> we're working on that after, you know, 50 years. Um, the hope is we will have food actually this year. We have the, oh, yeah. the, um, half of the bottom, the main floor of the main building that you were in. Um, is right now under construction to be turned into a huge social area with couches and tables. And the hope is that we'll have um, food and coffee service. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's, only, really it's, every, it's so important. People have been complaining about it for decades. And, and finally, the university is, is on board with letting us do something. So, yeah. Yeah. Part of what we loved um, up when, what I imagine, if it's still there, up on the fourth floor, there was that nice kind of kitchen and communal space. Yeah, and that's still there. It's still there, yeah. And I remember I talked to Thomas Berner a lot about the idea of how important it is to have those kind of communal spaces where everyone can go. You have those kind of random conversations that you might not have otherwise. And, you know, you get like real cross fertilization of, of ideas and you just hear about other people's lives as well so you get some perspective about science stuff and life stuff totally um, it's so helpful yeah uh, i have worked places where you just kind of go to your office and get your work done and then you you leave and it feels a bit a bit sad in comparison you know if, if people are just 
holed up in their individual offices. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear there will be like a big yep. communal space. And it is for exactly the reason that you're saying. I mean, the, the one downside really is that that hill is so many people. And this is the only space that's, you know, of any appreciable size. But we still couldn't all possibly fit in there. So I have a feeling in the beginning, it's going to still feel cramped purely because you know, the hundreds of scientists that want a communal space are all going to be flocking. But that's that's a good problem to have um, in the sense that, you know, we, we need something like this. And for me, actually, it's and it's not just the science and the personal side. It's also especially with students when when I want to have a chat with them about life or something that's maybe not technical. Sitting in an office across the table from each other feels so formal that it just even the atmosphere you're in changes the tone and, and how people feel. And so I'd love to have a place to just say, Hey, let's go grab a coffee and chat. Right. Um, absolutely. And, and so yeah. that's what I'm excited about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it just changes the whole tone and it can relax, mm-hmm. you know, relax everybody involved. It kind of, is a, it's a signal, isn't it? Of like, look, let's just talk. Let's just exactly. not worry, you know, not worried about your plot or your color bar or your statistical significance, right? Let's just, just tell me how you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's an important thing as an advisor, isn't it? Is, um, you know, that we have, uh, well, some people here that I've talked to in the UK, they, they have a phrase, they'll call it a, a duty of care. They'll say, well, it's our job to, you know, make sure you're, that, that the people you supervise are doing okay. And it goes beyond just, you know, pulling work out of them. You know, it goes, into like, well, let me let me check and see if there's anything I can do to, to help make sure you're you're doing okay and just in terms of your your life stuff, and the the professors who offered me that kind of help over the years made a big difference because it helped me feel like I was plugged into a a community. It helped me feel like I was plugged into, you know, a, a set of people who could respond to more than just you know where's the next plot and where's the next paper. Right. It kind of helps you feel a bit safe. So totally, it's, uh, that part's really important to me. I, I can't say that I'm perfect yet, but it's been, it's why I'm in the job I'm in. Is I, I, I my job is, is to really to mentor. Well, nurture is a part of that word, but mentor I think really is the word that captures sort of everything. Is to mentor the next, if you will, wave of great great scientists and scientific leaders and and. You can't just do that with plots and figures. It's a part of it's. It's about being human, and you know, you know. I, I tell them they're sort of a second family, you know, and mm-hmm. and and in that sense, I care about how they're doing. And then when they look at me a little weird, sometimes I say, "If this helps you, I'll, I'll say it another way. You'll do better science if you're happy." So you know, <laughs> if if that makes you feel better, and you're trying to figure out my ulterior motives. Ultimately, I want you to do good science and be a great scientist. So I need you to be happy. And to be happy, I need to find out how you're doing, you know, and they laugh. And, and typically, you know, I think, I think in my group, I'm quite proud of, of, of all of the effort everybody has put into making sure that their, their colleagues, you know, ha- have the support on all aspects of what it means to be a scientist. Right. And, and, and I have two small children. So I can't, I can't possibly pretend to be separating my work and my, the rest of my life. It's, everything's everywhere. So um, it's important that I talk to my students about what's going on in that sense for why, you know, I'm here or not there or what my time constraints are. But then likewise, I, I, 
I'm open to tell me what you're struggling with and we can figure out how to make that work. Also, I think as a mentor, it's our job to make sure once people go out into the world to be scientists or use whatever, you know, degree they got to go and do the thing they want to do. That's, they still have to figure out how to incorporate that into all the other aspects of their lives and what makes them them. And, and so part of, part of grad school, I think is trying to pick up some of the tools for how to do that, but I don't think you pick them all up then. I'm still picking up some of those tools, I think. So, you know, you slowly, you slowly build your toolbox over time. Yeah, absolutely. It never, it never stops. I don't think, I think it's just a constant evolution. Yeah. I always thought, oh good. When I'm such and such an age or once I have tenure, I'll have that figured out. And now I still have colleagues who, you know, full professors, decades winning awards, and they'll come to me and say, okay, I'm still struggling with this aspect of, of my job or my life. And it's like, okay, I don't know if I feel better or worse that that, that you haven't figured it out either, but. Sorry. It never ends. Yeah, it never ends. You got it. <laughs> That's actually Taka put that in a funny way um, once when we were talking about this area, and he said, "Oh no, it just gets worse." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he didn't. He didn't mean that in a, in a defeated way. He just meant like, "Yeah, more's coming." <laughs> yep, yep. Figure out, figure out what you can now, but it's not going away. And it also means though that all those people that you you look up to out there are probably dealing with all of this too and maybe that makes it a little easier to see them as human yeah absolutely and i was also just thinking about how you can you can feel this stuff like when you go into a department where people are supportive generally and and i've got to say overall um you know csu the atmospheric science department that that you're in and that i was in felt really supportive to me and felt really um inclusive and uh, not every department is that friendly. Not not every department of that is that supportive. You know, I, I won't name names, but I've visited places where you kind of feel the fear. You know, you just see it in people's faces, and they've just they're just worked to their yep you know, to, to their and to their until they're about to lose it, and it it really changes the feel of a place and the dynamic of of the place. Yep, and I and and then that's something. Whenever we're trying to recruit faculty or postdocs or graduate students, I, I always say, you know. I am proud to be a part of this place. I, I, I love it. And it's because of the people I am working with in the atmosphere, you know, no pun intended here, that we have of, we are here to build everybody up. We're not competing with each other. We're here to do great science, you know, as a team, whatever that means. And, and to, to build, you know, to support each other. And I, I, I have to say, I think CSU is one of the best places I have ever been or experienced or visited in that in that regard and the students feel it and the faculty feel it and it's and it's something not only of pride but it's also something we work really hard at and we are aware that that kind of thing can go away if you're not careful right if you don't if it's not a priority and and the thing i'm most i'm so proud of it it is a priority in our department and still is so it's it's wonderful yeah absolutely i I totally agree with you i mean I guess we should flag up that we're we're biased because yeah, of course we are. <laughs> know how to there, but uh, yeah, I, I have nothing but but positive things to say. Yeah, and, and that, that's really good to hear. And I think it's along the lines of what you're saying. I think that department can stand as a a really good example of you don't have to do the you know East Coast work yourself to death, mm-hmm. you know, burn the candle at both ends, sort of stress out about life all the time and work all the time you don't have to live in that misery to do really good science yep you know you can you can actually be you know mentally healthy 
I mean, okay. Sometimes things are hard, regardless of where you right, are. Of course. I don't. I don't want to sweep any of that under the rug or be disrespectful to anybody who's who is going through a hard time. Um, but it it sure can make a difference if to to know that you don't have to suffer to do good science. That's not part of the equation. Uh, and when I say suffer, I mean you know, okay, you you might have to put in long hours, but I, sometimes. But I don't mean like. Yeah, you don't have to be miserable. Like it's not it's not a requirement. No, and actually I think my my mindset is you know, it's possible that you could have written a big a really great paper while being miserable, but to actually be able to continue this for years and years if you will sustainability wise, um I tell all my students if if they'll do yeah, as I said already, they'll do better science if they're happy. And, and I want to teach them how to work really, really hard, harder than they've ever worked before, and yet be totally fulfilled and, you know, go home and do something else. Um, so that that's the goal, right? And some days we're all better at it than others. Sure, absolutely. No, it's, uh, it, and it, it's, it's interesting to think about that there are, there are things you can do to help nurture that sort of supportive environment. But like you said, if you're not careful, you can also do things that, you know, that discourage that sort of supportive yeah. environment. So it's a big responsibility. Yeah. And I was also going to say, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, uh, so, I, no, I, okay. I, I was going to say about that. Um, so something I do that is a little weird, but I, I haven't figured out a, a way around it is, is growing up. And when I knew that I wanted to be an academic, I was looking for those role models. And, and when you look at the people that were the superstars, it sort of looked, you, you never heard about the, the rest of their lives. They just looked like this is all they did. They ate and slept, you know, science. It got me a little stressed out about how I was supposed to do the things I wanted to do in life and do science. Um, and so something I do do with my group and, you, know, you, you could ask them on another date whether how this is working, but I try to be pretty um, open about what, you know, why I, I'm, I'm not at work. If, if something came up, for example, I have two small kids and if somebody's sick and I have to go home, I, I'll let them know, hey, I'm going home because I have a sick kid, but I'll be, you know, on email or if you need me, you know, text me and let me know and we'll, we'll chat. And I think I, I, I do that because I want them to know that um, I'm a human, if you will that I'm dealing with the normal things in life and, you know, having to figure out what, what dinner to feed everybody, you know, or my husband figuring out what dinner to feed everybody while also editing a paper and making a talk for tomorrow, you know, and all those, all those work related things. And, and it's something that I sort of had wished I had seen a little more because it would have made it look like it was possible to do um, rather than sort of this hush, hush, don't, you know, separation of work, work and life, if you will, the rest of life, I guess. Which, as I mentioned already, for me, there there's there isn't much of a separation in the first place. I don't know how to do that. So, so that I, I I try to share a little bit about what that looks like, so they know. Yeah, this is how the world is really working. Right. So they can that can help them set realistic expectations yep. for, and for you know what their their life might look like. And and of course, everybody's different. Not everybody, everybody has stressors on their lives and they're very different from each other. So, you know, it doesn't have to be picking up your kids when they're sick. It could be so many other things. But the idea is, no, I am not at the office until midnight, go home and sleep for four hours and then be back at work again. That's just not what I do. No, you know, no, uh, no unless you're taking the qualifying exam. Right. You might do that. You might do that yet pull two all nighters or something. Yes. Okay. There are there's a time and a place, of course. 
But like you said, not sustainable. That's not a good long-term strategy. Right. You can run yourself into the into the ground. Well, you, you mentioned when you were growing up. Oh, and just briefly, you know, I will say that that's the transparency thing about showing more about your life. That is one kind of good thing about the internet. I mean, okay, the internet has uh, brought a lot of things that uh, into our lives that we're now debating uh, the relative <laughs> value or not of them. But that is one good thing is it is for for those scientists who are willing to be a little bit more open, it is easier to get that sense of uh, a little bit more anyway of what their life is actually like. That's and a they, great they point. Look, they look less like a monolith up on the hill somewhere and more like, um, okay, a, a person a dedicated person who has navigated a particular way through the world and is doing scientific work. Um, so science Twitter has been good for that. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I like trying to do podcasts like this cause I mean, it gives people an opportunity. I mean, we've had a nice time talking about it already and, you know, uh, hopefully people will hear this and get some better sense of like that, uh, that no, it's not, it's not just, uh, you know, when you look at somebody's, publication record mm-hmm. especially if it looks really impressive it's easy, easy to imagine that like well i guess they've just got this all figured out and they just you know are, are yep. running head smoothly but that person's life is not necessarily simple it's could, could be very hectic and it could be very stressful at times and could, could even be confusing at times and frustrating at times so actually um, about that i mean i was just thinking the other day i had to submit you know my cv for something and my cv stresses me out i don't know where all that stuff came from you know, I don't feel like I know what's going on. And then suddenly my, I look at it and I'm like, who did that? How did they have time to do it? You know, and and I think, well, something we do um, in our dyna- big dynamics groups so of multiple faculty who think about dynamics and climate all get together with their groups every week. And it's more about um, career development, less about the science. We do have science, but it's really an opportunity for all of these students to interact, you know, with each other and with the faculty. And we started something a few years ago that maybe you've heard of called CV of failures. Have you heard of this? I've heard that called the anti-CV. Yeah, or the anti-CV. Okay, great. And so we had the faculty, you know, up in front of their all of these groups get up and present their what we called CV of failures or the anti-CV. It was awesome. It was awesome just, just to talk up to, to show these students all the times that things that I, you know, fell flat on my face on. And yeah. I aren't on that piece of paper, but what, uh, which is really, well, this is really funny is I was excited to present, you know, here are all the things I've screwed up on. Here are some reviews I've gotten back on that were just, you know, just tore me apart. You know, this happens yeah. to all of us, but it, even as a faculty member, it was awesome to see my colleagues who I also think are superstars tell me all the ways they have failed. Some of them yeah. were sort of surprising. It actually really, it was meant for the students, but in the end, I think I got just as much out of it as they did um, watching my colleagues. So I think that's actually something that's really important. Not just So it's not just life and what does a normal person's life look like that's also doing great science, but also that the CV is really this, this very picked over set of experiences that the person has decided, you know, are exemplary enough to put on a piece of paper but it's probably only 5% of all of the things that have happened. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That, um, it normalizes failure and it makes it clear that, yeah, that's, that's a completely expected part of the experience, you know, no matter, no matter what you're doing. And that if, if you're encountering failure at a regular rate, it probably, probably means you're trying. It probably means 
trying to do stuff, yep. which is good. It's great. Yep. And I even tell my students, you know, whenever I get reviews back from a paper, I also, you know, it's always hard to read criti criticism of, of something that you love and you've poured your heart and soul into it. So I always joke, you know, okay, you read them once and then you set them aside and you go buy yourself a candy bar or a donut and you eat it. And then the next day you come back with a nice warm coffee and you read them again. You know, this is, this is, doesn't matter who you are or what stage you are in your career. That part's, you know, it's getting criticism is never fun, but you have to learn from it. And I think that's one other important thing about failures is not just that it happens because they do, you know, everybody fails, but the hope is that you did learn something from it. Yes. It's, yeah, absolutely. And, and you actually have to choose to learn something. Otherwise, it's very easy to say, oh, well, they just didn't understand me. Um, or whatever it is and, and to try and actually, you know, philosophy and introspection and all these things come in, right. About, um, about in these situations. So it gets very deep, yeah. very fast. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's good to know that there are other, there are different communities out there, you know, sometimes, so I'm, I'm a modeler. So when I write a paper, sometimes I can tell really clearly like, Oh, I, this reviewer is, is mostly an observational person. Right. And through some of their criticisms, I can see like, uh, okay, I didn't do enough to speak to that community. Like I didn't plug into, you know, what would the observational folks want to know, you know, in, in this paper. Um, and that actually can be really instructive, right? It can get me thinking, of, okay, I need to really think about who my audience is and write specifically so I can make sure that I can reach that audience in a really clear way, yep. and, you know, get right to what my point is. And, uh, so it can get you thinking about that aspect of, of your writing or of, of your science. And uh, that's, that can be really valuable. I, uh, I don't know how, how, how you are, but I find that usually when I get a review, when I, when I read it, I overreact to the negative stuff. I look yep. at the negative stuff and go like, oh my God, just forget this. And like you said, I'll walk away, I'll wait till the next day or maybe even a couple of days later. Yep. And pretty much every time when I look at it again, after that initial emotional kind of shock has worn off, I look at them again and it's pretty much always like, oh, it's not that bad. Actually, It's, it's always fine. better. Yeah. Even when it was a terrible set of reviews, and I've gotten some like very critical ones. Once you walk away and come back, it is, you're, you know, you've, your derivative is up, you know, it's positive. It's always better, whatever it is, um, which is a good sign. Right. I, I mean, I guess, and I mean, with that though, is the, this, idea that our brains are really good at holding on to negative things right and we forget the positives so quickly yeah. and i think that's true to change a little from reviews um that's also another one of those little tricks that i, I picked up somewhere along the way like cv of failures but um i have it's very silly all my students sort of roll my eyes their eyes at me but um i have what's called a go me as in you know myself yeah. Go me yeah. folder in my email, in my inbox, you know, or, and whenever anybody writes something in an email, that's nice, or, you know, a student accepts to come join my group, which is always a, a huge deal. That's very exciting. I put it in that folder because every, you know, there's been a lot of science, I think that shows that we're really good at remembering all the negatives. And if we say win some huge award for about 48 hours, we're really excited. And then, you know, Right after that 48 hour mark, we go back to thinking, oh, I, I'm useless. I can't do anything. Nothing ever works. And so this is a way of, of when you have those moments, you go into this folder and you say, hey, remember all those awesome things that, you know, I did or, you know, you get an email from a colleague saying, 
you change the way I see this particular phenomenon, or you get something from a student saying you were really important for me getting this job or, you know, something or other. And I've started that because I found myself coming home and, and feeling quite down about I'm not making any difference. And, you know, having my husband say, well, hold on a second, just last week, you know, so-and-so emailed you about how you were a great whatever. And by that point, I'd already forgotten. So I I force all my students to make these little folders in their, in their emails. Um, And even if there's only one thing in there, you you know, everybody has something good that has happened. Um, So I like how, I like how practical this is too, because you know, the way that, that you framed it is you can say, well, no, this isn't just like, you know, something out of a motivational psychology, but you're saying, this is how brains work. Yeah. Brains like to focus on negatives. You have to actively push against that. You exactly. have to actively work against your brain's tendency to catastrophize everything and to make everything look you know, bleaker than, than it maybe is. Right. And so this is one, one solution to that, to that fight. You're sort of on the losing end of a tug of war. So we're trying, you know, we're trying to get some other people on the other side, pulling a little harder, the back towards the middle. Um, and yeah, and yeah. So anyway, so I, I have ha- had students and, and colleagues tell me, you know, they, they laugh at me when I say to do it. But about a year later, they come back and go, I actually opened that folder the other day, you know. So anyway, and it's not hard to do. It's not hard, right? So. No, yeah. no, it's, it's you just have to get in the habit of it. Yeah. Get, get comfortable with the idea, I guess, you know, you can tell yourself that, yeah, it's okay. It's I'm okay. Working. My, my brain's negative pattern. Yeah, exactly. You're right. Yeah. If you need that to rationalize, go for it. You got it. Sometimes I do need mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So You mentioned when you were growing up and, you know, you had this perception of, you know, scientists or you had this perception of, of people kind of as the scientists up on a hill, these monoliths. Yeah. Um, so where, where did you uh, grow up? So I, I grew up in Minnesota. And actually, um, actually, though, my, my dad is a faculty member. Um, so I, I saw what life was like for a professor back in the eighties and nineties, you know, that's what I, that's what I grew up with. And, um, I was born right before he defended his PhD. So, I mean, I obviously don't remember that time, but, um, I really saw that process of being tenure and then being, you know, doing what was next, et cetera. And I mean, I would say my, my dad was a, is is he's he's still alive my dad is a wonderful wonderful human and is one of my greatest role models and was one of my biggest cheerleaders and has been my biggest cheerleader my entire life but with that said you know this was a different time when getting tenure really did mean working all the time every day Um, Mm. and i remember he also had you know he, he and my mom really wanted us in a good school um, and so he commuted 50 minutes each way every day because he wanted to make sure that we, his kids went, went to a particular school. And because of that, we didn't see him a lot. Right. And, you know, a Saturday was no different than a Monday really. Um, oh, well, yeah. so, and I mean, the summers were different, but really he worked so, so hard. And so I, I always knew I wanted to, well, not always, but since I was very young, I knew I wanted to be a professor. And I think, if you will, in my blood. Um, mm-hmm. But with that said, I was always a little uneasy because I didn't want to be a professor that way. But I didn't right. know if that was possible because looking out 
um, into the world, it was hard to see um, people living that life the way I thought I, I, I was hoping I would be able to. Right. Well, what's his subject? Uh, yeah. So he does um, ground rot water. And so like fluid mechanics, you could say okay. applied mathematician um, in many ways. So uh, he, you know, geoscience, but on the engineering side. So he would always joke that he's an engineer. So he actually does something. Whereas I just sort of sit around and think about things. Uh, <laughs> or get computers to think about things. And then you think about the things that the computers tell you. That the, the computer was telling you. Yeah, exactly. Um, and actually the, the funny thing is we've wrote, written some papers together, um, really? which was a lot of fun because you, you joked about computers. We, we, we attacked sort of a very simple climate question about data analysis and I did it with my computer simulations and he did it all analytically on a piece of paper. And we, you know, we showed that we both got the same answer, but we got it from two different, very different perspectives. So it was, it was sort of fun. Um, getting to so they, meet in the middle there. So they kind of complemented each other. Yes. I mean, here, his was far more elegant, but I, I, you know, I, mm -hmm. uh, mine, I think was far more practical to be honest. So <laughs> it was a lot of fun. <laughs> derivable from from the data that's right well, that, but that might be a good this might be a good way to jump into you know talking about artificial intelligence yep. and talking about you know data analysis and um the uh before we do that though i should should ask like um since we talked about your dad is, is your mom mom was around and yes so uh, yeah yes great um so my mom is also a superstar um so she was an engineer and actually in colorado she was president of the, what is it, Society of Women Engineers for all of Colorado back in the early 80s, which was saying something. Being a yeah. woman in, in civil engineering back then was hard. Um, yeah. And ultimately, she uh, stopped um, doing that job to end up raising four children, which was, right. imagine, a full-time job in and of itself. And oh wow! After after that, she actually went back and now has a full career um, and owns a business as an editor of newspapers. So huh. she she's quite I mean good at many things, and she still holds her keeps her engineering license active. So I mean she's she's pretty awesome. Um, and and so I I do. It's not really a joke. It's just true that I had a relatively I would say unfair advantage growing up that I had a dad who you know was did applied mathematics and science so he could help with all of that and then a mom who could who could help with all of our writing and you know english etc and so i really had almost personal tutors at home every time i get off the school bus um yeah but you still had to want to do it I don't, absolutely. i'm not trying to <laughs> yes <laughs> i also worked very hard of course but um it was pretty we were pretty lucky to know that if we had a question at 10 p.m you know on our homework we had one of the two experts in the house so you, you knew who to call yeah you had someone to call yeah, exactly <laughs> just down the hall yeah where do you fall in the sibling order oh i'm i'm i am textbook oldest yeah, textbook textbook oldest. Yeah. Uh, you, you mean in terms of like uh, type A sort of? Is that what you type mean? Type A, you know, uh, all my siblings will let you know. Bossy, you know, the, all of that good stuff. Um, I, I have a running joke with my littlest brother saying being the oldest is the hardest. And he always looks at me and goes, you know what I think is the hardest? And I was like, oh, you're going to stay the youngest. He's like, oh, no, being the oldest is the hardest. And I'm like, okay, we can agree on something. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so so I've, I'm, I'm the oldest of... of Four. And actually, my littlest brother moved to Fort Collins and now lives here. 
which is pretty great. So, oh, well, and uh, then where the sorry, what are you saying? Go ahead. Oh, yeah. I was gonna say, and then I have another brother who, um, who's actually just defending his PhD in the next month, um, in uh, like a biomediation, so thinking about soils and sort of chemical engineering. So it's 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 a it's a crazy family. <laughs> Bioremediation. So is it like soil repair? It's soil? soil, but it's also um he's doing a lot of work actually with um sewage systems like in New York City and thinking okay. about how to make them more efficient and um you know healthy and for water etc. So yeah, yeah, important work. I didn't know it existed, and it's a lot of chemistry, which is not my forte. But that's why there are people like him, and I can go off and do my own thing good uh so i mean i'm guessing thanksgiving christmas you know if you want to it sounds like as a family you can you can go into a very technical Indeed. yeah sometimes it's exhausting to be honest it would be nice to talk about the weather every once in a while but yeah <laughs> you mean talk about the weather with yeah you're right with the, yeah you're right that's a, yeah like sort of you know things like highs and low temperatures maybe and stop end it there um the drizzle yesterday rather than jumping into solving some pve or something or other so like man this uh, air column is really stratified right. <laughs> no 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> so cool yeah so you mentioned this paper that you did with your with your dad yep. with these two perspectives and I think that's a neat place to start sure. because, you know, I think that's sort of, it's not like a crossroads exactly. I wouldn't put it, I wouldn't be that dramatic about it, but I think our field as a whole is trying to contend with and understand this, the, the, the bridge between those two worlds, right? The mm -hmm. one that, we're, that, that most people are, most scientists are kind of familiar with and pretty comfortable with here's some equations, here's some basic theory in terms of how this process is, is related to this other process. And, you know, often you can look at a system of equations and get some insight into how it works by just kind of looking at the structure of it, maybe doing some simple perturbations and things. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it a little bit, but I just mean that world of equations and, and concepts and, you know, pen and paper kind of stuff with some some simple computer simulations. Mm -hmm. And that's the traditional, you know, view of the, the, the way that we look at a physical system like the atmosphere, the ocean, or the coupled system. And we have, as a field, more recently, and, and I think you've been a big part of this, honestly, looking at all you've done and looking at the timescale of when this has, has arisen, you know, we're starting to use these tools, some of which have been around for a while, these machine learning tools mm -hmm. uh, from, from engineering and from that area. Uh, and we're trying to figure out what can we do with these, these new, new to us. They're not new to the world, right. not, not new to engineers, but they're new to us because we finally have enough data to actually do something with them now, which was not always the case. We didn't always have enough data to really make use of these kind of big data tools and machine learning kind of tools. Um, so yeah, this is, this is, we're trying to figure out how to reconcile our process-based yep. understanding, I think, with the more data-driven approach where you don't necessarily give your machine learning algorithm a lot of prior information. You kind of often just say, well, here's, here's the data. Tell me what you find in it. Tell me the structure that you find in it. Um, and I, of course, I want to let you actually talk about it. I just, I thought that that, that contrast is is interesting so but why don't we start here because just um yesterday 
I was sitting at lunch at work or two days ago, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> and and uh, I overheard some of my colleagues saying like, well, I don't know what the difference is. You know, I don't really know what artificial intelligence is. I don't really know what the difference is between machine learning and artificial intelligence. So maybe we could start just with those, like how do you parse those things in your mind and, and how do you think of machine learning and artificial intelligence? Yeah, so I have I have Wikipedia this probably just as much as the average person um, about the difference. And there are, are various definitions and we, we could all go look it up. I, I will say I have yet to get a distinct answer that's, you know, really clear cut from anybody, including my computer science colleagues. I see. So so with that said, when I use these phrasing, I can at least tell you what I mean um, generally. AI, I, th I see as the big overarching, um, the big, big overarching umbrella that people sort of like, you just throw it in and everybody generally knows what you mean. Um, machine learning then really comes to learning information from your data is how, how I tend to think about it. So when, you know, when, when it's sort of sexy, using the phrase AI works just fine, but really machine learning is 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 really what I think as scientists we're doing, um, as as geoscientists I should say most of the time, mm. um, and then deep learning is really just when those models get more complex. So um, there's some cartoon I've looked for it, but I can't find it again online. That says you know when you're talking to the press you're doing AI, when you're talking to your colleagues and colleagues in another field you're doing machine learning, and when you're talking to your group you're doing nonlinear regression you know um right and that's okay. that's really how i view it and how my group is using using these tools is when we when you really look at it we're not doing anything that new per se we're just we we haven't totally turned the tables here we're just we're putting on slightly different tinted lenses than we had on before um and i think yeah. as soon as you appreciate that it doesn't it's not magic anymore and and actually i take great pride when i give a tutorial or i write a paper or a, an opinion piece on this topic, or especially when I give a talk and someone afterwards comes up and goes, I always thought it was this magical thing, but you sort of make it look a little, you know, easy and boring, you know? And I go, thank you. Cause that's thank all, you know, at least, at least the type that I'm working on right now, I'm, I'm doing a lot of work with neural networks specifically, mm -hmm. and it really isn't that hard. And it's really not that different than what we were doing, um, in many ways before it's just the slightly more complex structure of a model can 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 output things you 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 didn't know before it can also output yeah. garbage right so you yeah, have to be yeah. that's that's where the real science comes in honestly is knowing what to believe and what not to but um yeah so so that's how i separate those words myself let me tell you this phrase i heard now i'll get your reaction to yeah see what you, so the way that i read it somewhere was that well machine learning is basically nonlinear fitting on steroids where the objective is to get the most general statistical model as opposed to one that fits your particular data the best so that's the goal yeah that's yeah. the goal now the hard part is the second part the mm -hmm. hard part is figuring out whether this beautiful fit that you just got on your data is truly generalizable or not that's, that's right. That's the hard part. And that's where actually there's this huge push right now in the last two years 
on that has lots of different names, but it's something that I'm very excited about and a part of a few NSF projects on called Physics Guided Machine Learning. That's one topic. And the idea is, as you said at the beginning, really these machine learning tools have often um, been used as, and, and, and you will find very famous computer scientists quoted as saying, don't put constraints on it. Just give it the data. It will tell you the answer. And as, as scientists, as physicists, we feel incredibly uncomfortable with that. And, and I do. The reason I do is it feels, um, uh, it feels a little inefficient, actually, because I think, okay, for hundreds of years, we've had physicists working on conservation principles like conservation of energy or momentum or, you know, F equals MA. And now we're going to throw all that work out. Like th this doesn't seem like the best use of our, our of our knowledge of our state of the science, and so this yeah. concept of physics guided machine learning is okay. There's no question these machine learning tools can do pretty amazing things, as you said, fitting on steroids. But at the same time, wouldn't they be more amazing if they also made sure that you know force equals mass times acceleration or whatever it is you 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 care about? Um, yeah. So how can we put those two together? And what's beautiful and what's so neat about the few papers that have come out doing this, what they show is that on data that the you know neural network, as an example, has never seen before, the one that obeyed physical laws always did the best. And the reason is because we know the world actually obeys those physical laws. Um, yeah, it would have to be more generalizable. Yep. We generally expect energy to be conserved. Yeah, exactly. Or whatever rule it is you want to encode right into that. And so um, the computer science world, my understanding up until very, very recently, and by very recently, I mean the last six months, there was a, a very famous um, uh, opinion piece put out where a very famous computer scientist said, you know, maybe we should back up a little bit and start to put some physical constraints within these the, you know, these models to try to have physically consistent, um, that the phrasing being physically consistent with our understanding of the way the world works, rules to help them learn better. And, and if you think about it, when you're trying to fit a nonlinear function, it's like you have an infinite state space, an infinite number of possibilities. And this neural network or this machine learning algorithm is attempting to find the best option somewhere in that infinite space. And what you're doing is if you tell it, hey, F, F has to equal MA, you've pretty much cut out a huge portion of that space it no longer needs to look. So yeah. you've really just helped it narrow in on the region that's going to be the best, the best solution. That's right. You've used expert knowledge to like zoom, zoom in a little bit. Yeah. Focus the algorithm on like, okay, I just want you to look over here. We don't really know how mixing works, but we know F equals MA. So it yep. should be over you should be generally over there. But otherwise, do your thing. I'm not going to tell you what I think is the answer. You know, like, figure it out. Tell me what you think is the low, you know, makes the loss function the smallest. And then I'll come back and, and look at that and see if it makes sense. Um, and anyway, so I think this is going to be, this is huge for our field in my mind. And what's why, one of the reasons I am so excited right now to be in this field is I feel like as scientists, in the coming five, 10 years, we're only going to become more important, not less. So people that are worried about these tools, you know, oh, they're just going to do science for us. I think the opposite. I think we're more important now than ever, ever in this world of big data, especially in geoscience, or at least atmospheric science. We have so much data. It's not all great data, but we have so much data. Um, I know the ocean is very different, <laughs> so I appreciate that. But um, 
we, 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 yeah, we can learn things, but we're, we're critical in, in, in helping, um, uh, build these algorithms to do the best job that they can. So that's right. Yeah. Cause we, we have that domain knowledge, that, that expert knowledge and, um, the, we, we generally know what a bad answer looks like. Right. Generally things don't look quite right. Look, yep. But they look kind of over, overfitted or over constrained to us. Um, so just out of curiosity in, in really general terms, for this physics guided approach, how do you impose a constraint? Yeah. On, uh, something that needs to learn because these, these algorithms kind of, they, they learn from the data and, but how do you kind of encourage it to understand the laws of physics? Yeah. And to them? Great question. So first of all, um, I'll give you, well, I can, one of them is really easy to describe. I know of a two or three ways that, and this is all coming out of, in the last say two years. So I'm talking about, this is just, you know, we're at the forefront here, which is so great, but part of projects I'm involved in and others is saying this, there can't, there has to be more ways. Let's figure them out. So are there, the, the, we're at the beginning here. Um, in, in a year, I will have hopefully a much longer list to give you of how to do this. The easiest way that I, that I can think of, and that has been shown to work is you penalize the model when it breaks your law. So think about something like when we go, go back to middle school math, when you learn to fit a line through data, uh, at least for me, you know, we, we just drew lines. We didn't actually know how it worked, but ultimately you had to figure out what the slope and y-intercept of the best fit line was. And the whole way you do that is you have to minimize, um, you want to get the least squared error, right? You want to minimize the squared error of their data. And, and so you, in essence, have this quantity that you're trying to make small. And the, the word for that is often called the loss function. So the thing you're trying to make small and minimize. And what you do with this physics-guided approach is you add to that value another term that's how badly you broke physics, if you will. So you write, you calculate F and you calculate MA and you see how off they are. So the more more off they are, the more F doesn't equal MA, the bigger that penalty, the more the algorithm says, oh, okay, I need to make that term smaller. And so actually just by doing that, um, you can get your, your network in this case to actually generally obey that physical law because it learns very quickly that if it doesn't, it's going to be in trouble. Right. And maybe we should contrast that with in a kind of more typical or traditional machine learning setup, you would show the algorithm, whether it's a neural network or whether it's a clustering algorithm or, or some, some kind of regression thing, you would tell it, well, here's the input and here's the output. You would kind of tell it, I don't care how you do it, but find how the inputs and the outputs are related. Uh, and you, you wouldn't penalize it for you know, you wouldn't penalize it really. You would just say, find me the, the relationship between the inputs and the outputs. Yeah, but in that so, case, your loss function, your, 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 the thing you are penalizing it for is when it gets the wrong answer. So the output, when it guesses the wrong output, you say, oh, that wasn't right. Try again. And it looks for, it looks for the best way to make that error on the output the smallest possible. And now what you're saying is, even if you got the right answer, so the standard approach would say, you got the right answer. Perfect. We're done. And this approach says, I don't actually care if you got, you know, the right answer that you guess the high temperature for tomorrow. You guess the high temperature for tomorrow, but you broke this law. 
you're yeah. still I'm still gonna give you an F. <laughs> and it has to figure out how to get the right answer and you know, obey these laws that are so important to you. The hope is you may not get an A plus on all of your outputs, but you're going to get an A and you're going to obey laws, which as I said, um, makes it makes intuitive sense that ultimately on data it's never seen will then be more generalizable because that's the way the real world actually works. Um, it, you just, you made this, uh, I got this picture in my head based on what you said. Of yeah. like, well, now we're, we're sending you know, the algorithms, we're sending the algorithms to, to university now, you know, they, <laughs> before maybe they were able to get away with giving us the, the right answer for the wrong reason. Exactly. Put up that anymore. Nope. Now, we need to see your work and we need to see that you got the right answer for the right reason. That's right. You have to go to physics 101. You yes. know, that's exactly <laughs> right. And even yeah, if your grade drops right. a little bit on some of that data, that's okay. Because ultimately as, ultimately, as scientists, we know that you're probably actually getting it for the right reason now. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. But that, yep. I really like that contrast, and I'm excited to hear that. I'm excited to hear that you're excited about it. Oh, yeah, I am. <laughs> Very. That's cool. Um, so we have you know a lot of different stuff that we could talk about, but just to pick something specific, sure. do we want to talk about this geophysical research letters paper that came out, this viewing yeah, climate patterns through an AI lens. The uh, so how, how did that one come about? How did that? Uh, where did what's the okay? So that's actually this? sort of a funny story. Well, okay, it's not funny. I think it's entertaining, but of course I would. Um, so, so the way that came about actually was I, I was already. I, well, I will back up and just say I've always had a passion for the data science side of science. Um, but I also felt always felt a little embarrassed about it. So I kept it quiet and I was, you know, I'm a true dynamicist and whatever that means. And it, it wasn't until just a few years ago that I finally realized that, that the data analysis side wasn't anything to be ashamed of and that it truly was science too. And that there are going to be people that don't agree with me. And you know what? Too bad for them. I, I believe it. And, and it makes me happy. So I was already on my, I just love methods. I love it. I love them. I have so much fun and I want to do good science, but I really do love thinking about the tools we use to do the science. Mm -hmm. um, so I was already in that world and this was what a year and a half ago and a, a graduate student, not in my group, but actually more on the computer science side came and said, Libby, I'd love some data for my machine learning final project. And I want to do it with climate data. And she says, but since it's machine learning and I want to put in input, as you said, Dan, and, and I need it to predict an output, I need to know what the right answer is on the output. So could you give me some climate data, data and make sure that whatever the question is, is also labeled so I know what the right answer was? Um, as an example, uh, identify blocking anticyclones throughout the reanalysis record and then label whether there's a block there or not. Now, as someone who's not in the climate field, that doesn't sound so bad. But if you're in the climate field, you're going, how am I going to identify the blocks? And how am I going to know that, you know, that's a lot of work. This was for a project. And so we were, she was standing in my office and I said, okay, I have lots of data, but we have to think about what, what you're going to train. What, what do you want to know at the end? And how do we make sure we know what that right answer is? Um, and I said, okay, let's, Think about things that are so obvious to predict. We don't have to do any work to know what the right answer is. And that's where I came up with this idea that in all climate model output, there is a date associated with it, right? Every 
six hours or every day or every year, you have a date. Like this data is for January 1st, 1981 or whatever date. Does that make sense? Yes. And, yeah. I thought, and I thought that's just sitting there in the file. Is there a way we can approach the, a problem such that we don't have to do any work and the thing we're trying to predict is obvious? Um, and, and ultimately, she didn't like this project idea. So she went and did something else. And the more I thought about it over the coming weeks, the more I realized that this was absolutely fascinating. So the idea of the paper is we are going to input. Is it okay if I go into some details? The general yeah, detail? Okay. Yeah. The idea is very simple. Um, so we have mo climate model output. And what we've done is we've taken an annual mean. So we are going to have maps of annual mean surface temperature. So think of the year you were born. I'm going to have a map of what the temperatures on average were that year. So I have lots of these maps from many different climate models. So many 1980s, many 1981s, many 1982s, et cetera. And I'm going to, that's my input is one of those maps into a neural network. And I'm going to have the neural network guess what year it is. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it sounds sort of boring, actually. And I'll get to that in a minute. That's one of the reasons I'm so proud, actually, is how boring it is. Um, so you're going to say, okay, well, why would we do that? Well, let's think about it for a minute. Imagine I have a climate model simulation that has absolutely no, say, um, forcing trends. So often these are called um, control simulations. So everything's fixed at 1850 emissions levels, and it just runs for many, many years. And think about what would make any one year look different than the next. Well, it can't be because of CO2 changes because the CO2 isn't changing. It can't be because of land use changes because the land use isn't changing. The only thing that makes one year different from the next is just our typical climate noise. So this idea that the climate is a noisy place and we know that no one year looks like any other, right? It could be an El Nino or a La Nina. Um, this energy rushing between the atmosphere and the ocean. Exactly. Ocean and Internal variability. Internal variability, exactly. Yeah. So imagine I were to give you a map of a year from that simulation, say, what year is it? You would have no idea. You'd have no way to know because every year is like any other year except for this noise. But now imagine we go to a climate model where we have CO2 forcing that's changing, right, rapidly and ever increasing. Um, same as aerosols, land use is changing, etc. At some point, if I give you a map from the year 2100, you will probably, of temperature, you're going to be pretty sure it's not from 1922. Why? Because everything is hotter. Right? Mm -hmm. It just, we, we, we intuitively know that. Now, what if I gave you a map from 19, or sorry, from 2050? Would you also know it was from later in the decade, in the, in the century? Probably things would still be hot compared to, say, again, 1920. But what if I gave you a map from, 1940 could you distinguish that from the year 1920 and now now it's not so obvious so the whole idea here is we train a neural network to guess the year and we try and see can it first can it even do it and if it can when does it start being able to do it like what year is it suddenly like aha i found evidence of change and i know what year it is now and and third where is it looking on the globe to know what year it is? And another way to put that is what parts, what regions of the globe are reliable indicators of climate change? And so that's, that's the whole idea behind this paper is we set it up quite in a, in a really boring way 
input maps of annual mean temperature and have it predict the year, which I always joke, no one's going to pay me money to predict what year it is. No one's going to be like, here's a, here's a hundred million dollars, Libby, because you told me it was 2019. Um, But what's scientifically interesting is if this neural network does know it's 2019, how did it figure that out? What parts of the globe indicated it was 2019? And if it was able to do this successfully, that means, and, and we show, it can also do it in observations, meaning that these indicators that we found in these climate models are present in our in the real earth we live in. And that's pretty awesome um, in terms of thinking about the, the, these particular regions of the globe are the most reliable places to look for change over, say, the, the 20th and 21st century. Right. So it's not just about building the neural network, which, um, well, I guess we, we could briefly talk about that a neural network is, is a sequence of these layers that are connected to each other. Yep. Uh, where, you know, every individual kind of, um, there, there's a bunch of individual layers that are connected to each other through these weights. And yeah. the, the, weight, the weights are usually pretty simple expressions. No, they are. If you know how to, if you know how to write Y equals MX plus B, you know, if you know how to write a regression, you know, equation, that's yeah. all they are. The M's and the B's are these weights and biases, they called. The thing that's funky is they're combined through nonlinear functions that make things go from just a boring linear problem to being able to, you know, be an, a, a fitting on steroids, as you put it. Right. And so the whole process of training the neural network is about finding those weights. You got it. Finding, yeah. So, and you do that by showing it input value, input images, as you said, can input images of the temperature or whatever you're, you're using to train. And then the output, which in your case is the year, the single yep. number. Um, that's really clean, isn't it? Just like a single number. It, uh, we kept it simple intentionally. And I think that's the beauty is often people think, you know, the only way I can use neural networks for my climate work is we're going to replace dynamical models. I'm going to give it the map of 1980 and I want it to predict what 1981 is going to look like, the entire map of temperature. And that's often how these models have been used in our field. And that's really neat. But I'm saying we can do a lot more fun things with them than just trying to, say, emulate a dynamical system. We, we, can, we can get creative. Right. Yeah. And... and a simple thing, a simple setup, a simple kind of architecture or a simple like objective like that stands a better chance of being easier to interpret and yes. easier to you know, pull some like scientific information out of. Yes. Yeah. Whereas if you build something that can predict one year in advance, well, that might be useful kind of, and, and as people say, operationally, it could maybe be mm -hmm. useful, but your system might still be so complicated that it's hard to pull much science out of it. Yes. Because it's hard to interpret what you're looking at. And, uh, and I guess that gets me back to the, the patterns that you mentioned, those patterns that are mm -hmm. um, in your figure two caption, you call them indicators of a human influence on mm -hmm. surface temperature and precipitation. And you've got this map of the surface of the temperature indicator and, uh, it's got a really clear, like the Arctic is warming up or the Arctic temperature is really high. You see that polar amplification, which you do typically see in the like climate model simulations because the Arctic and to some extent the Antarctic are expected to warm up 
much faster than the other parts of the planet. Is that, am I thinking about it right? Is that yeah, so in the figure you're looking at where you see those really large polar signals, those are actually what you get when you, the typical kind of IPCC figure, which is looking at that force change. Um, what we found the indicator patterns themselves actually show is that the Arctic is not terribly reliable. And, and you might say, well, hold on a second. It's one of the biggest signals of climate change. We know this scientifically. Um, however, these indicator patterns are only showing you the reliable regions. And the reason the, Ar the reason the Arctic is not so reliable is while the signal is huge, it also has a large amount of internal variability from one year to the next. And climate models disagree quite a bit on what that change in the Arctic will look like. And because of that, the neural network says, hey, this isn't terribly reliable. I'm going to go look elsewhere for a place with a big signal, small noise, and the models agree. And so in that sense, we end up with interesting maps that maybe we didn't know to look there in the first place, because when we take these averages over many years, over many models, we damp out that noise and that model disagreement. Um, and so that, that's the idea there. Um, I, I will say that one of the most exciting things I think that we're doing is, is get it, get the, getting those maps, those indicator maps. And this, I think, is a little too complex, but it's um, in my, pro here, let me back up. In my problem, we're inputting maps of temperature and predicting the year. And a lot of people say neural networks are black boxes. You've probably heard that phrase many, many times. We don't know yeah. what's going on inside. They're black boxes. We shouldn't trust mm -hmm. them. And I'm going to tell you that if you hear anybody say that from now on, you can look at them and say, you're about, you know, five years behind. Um, they're not black. They're just not. There are so many tools out there to look inside. They're not transparent either. I would say they're maybe slate gray. All right. Mm -hmm. but, but there are amazing tools. And one of the things my group is very excited about, and my graduate student just submitted a paper last week trying to introduce one of these tools to the entire geoscience community. So, you know, take it from the computer science language and try and put it into the language of geoscientists. Um, are these tools that say, how do we look inside the network and figure out how it did what it did and why? And yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry, is that the uh, Benjamin Tom's? Yeah, Ben Tom's, yeah. Physically interpretable neural networks for the geosciences. Yeah, this uh, this showed up on archive recently. Exactly, and so the method in there is not something we came up with. Um, the computer science community came up with that a few years ago, called layerwise relevance propagation. It's not the perfect method. I do want to be clear. I'm not trying to tell everybody this is the the method to say you know of all methods, but it's the one that's been working really well for us. And what it lets you do is it says, okay, you guessed the year 2010. What part of the input map that I gave you made you think it was 2010? And this method gives you a heat map that lights up the regions of the globe that were most important or most relevant for it predicting 2010. And as you can imagine, that's a, that's a game changer. Now we can start to say, what part of my input made you think the output? Yes. This kind of reminds me of, I saw a good talk by an engineering student here in Cambridge and they were talking about uh, this sort of thing. They, they were talking about an image recognition program and okay. image recognition neural network that could do things like look at a picture and find animals. Uh -huh. and, uh, say, oh, that's a snake. And the student mentioned that in their setup that you could also interrogate the neural network and say, why did you think that was a snake? Yes. Specifically, like, which pixels were you using 
to decide that that was a snake. You got it. That's this type of method. And there are multiple methods out there. And this is just one particular one. But yes, that's exactly right. And as as a scientist, it's like, this is what we do. We ask why that we answer why. So the second you can do this, you're like, this is amazing. You know, our dynamical models, often it's hard to figure out why they did what they did because it's so complex. I mean, wouldn't it be amazing to know that this was why there was an El Nino this year? Because, you know, you, you somehow get some heat map from your dynamical model of where that came from. That would be, that would be great. Um, so, so yes, so th- this is exactly the thing. And I think that's why, you know, this, this first paper that we, we started off chatting about is fun. It's exciting. It got me into the, getting really interested in this topic. But I, I think the more, th- the future is really going to be these methods for figuring out what parts of, of your input, you know, why did you think the answer was what you did? And these tools out there are in a place now where as scientists, I think they're ready to be used by us. Um, yeah, it's, it's super cool. I was just staring at that figure two from the, the GRL yeah. in 2019 here and the, the temperature pattern after you clarified what I was looking at. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. I see some spots in the Indian Ocean and yep. kind of southern. Ocean. Um, you know, there's some kind of there's some regions that around the Agulhas. There's some regions that not exactly in in the deep mixed layer region. You know, the region where the there's lots of deep mixing, but kind of in the regions that are um, uh, a little upstream of that, a little upstream of the regions yep. of deep mixing. So that's kind kind of interesting. I see some gyre-like signals in the Atlantic, like you kind of see the Gulf Stream. Yeah, no, exactly. And these are really ocean signals, mostly. Yeah, on those long time scales, right? I mean, that's, exactly. That's, the ocean has so much heat capacity, um, and it's so gigantic that it's got to be. That has to be a huge part of the of the, of the, of the exactly of the reliable. And the neat thing is when we make these maps for the observations and say, "How did you know that this was the that you know when I gave you the actual 2010 map of temperature that we actually." experienced how did you know it was about 2010 when you look the southern ocean really pops out because we can use these methods and the neural network says well i use the southern ocean a lot to know that this was 2010 um Mm. and so currently i'm trying to figure out you know what part what why now 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 the neural network has done its job and now you know we're coming back to physics and and our understanding of the climate system and saying why was this part of the southern ocean so important both in climate models and in the real world Right. Yeah. And we know that the Southern Ocean has these pretty narrow exchange windows between the interior ocean and the surface, the kind of near surface. So I often that's part of the story, just in terms of it's such a big region for you know, upwelling of old yep. cold water, but also subduction into the interior, into the subsurface rather, um, of uh, like water that has been in more recent contact with the atmosphere it's a big part of that kind of so-called overturning circulation, the the kind of north-south, up-down circulation of the ocean. So that's really cool to see. It's cool to see it popping out of there. Um, and you, you also had this neat box and whisker plot. Yeah. You're talking about the year of departure from a baseline mm-hmm. uh, through an AI lens. And I guess, so the, the year, um, the, the Antarctic actually kind of around 2020 yep. is what on the plot and the arctic a little bit earlier than that so it's uh, so there's clear regional i guess the, the quick takeaway is there's clear regional differences of 
you know, you might be able to find these kind of climate change signals or the, the, the year of departure can be kind of different in different regions. Yeah. And that's because it's really this combination of the signal. How big is the climate change signal, which a lot of people, you know, is what we study when we look at these average maps, but it's just, it's not just the signal. It's also the, the size of the noise. The polar regions are very noisy compared to say the tropics. Um, and then also, you know, even if, even if those two, the signal's big and the noise is relatively small, the way we set up our problem is we also wanted to know where the climate models generally agreed. Because if, the, if half the climate models said, you know, the signal is this, is X, and the other half said the signal is Y, then how do we really know what we're looking for in the observations? Who, how do we know who's right? Um, and so instead, we said, I want you to only look in regions where the models also generally agree on what's going on. And so when you combine those three all together, it really creates regional differences and, and, you know, when the neural network can pick up on these patterns of change. Yeah, that's awesome. I, um, just to kind of zoom out a little bit and, uh, you know, this, this is a really exciting time to be kind of starting in this, this field. It, it's potentially a really exciting time for PhD students. Mm-hmm. Well, this might be an obvious question, but I don't know if if people are interested in delving into this area and you know learning more about this area, maybe trying some things out with with their own data. Um, I guess there's lots of different, of course, there are lots of different pathways into it. Um, and the uh, folks have been getting excited about this Pangeo initiative mm-hmm. because the the Pangeo kind of well, a, a Pangeo deployment in a on a server that has access to like all the climate model data, that can be super useful, obviously, because then you don't have to try to download all of the data. You know, the data can just live where, where it does. But um, uh, I don't know, what, what would you recommend for somebody who maybe wanted to get more into this kind of uh, data-driven machine learning AI sort of uh, in a wave in our, in our field? Yeah, no, I think this is really important. Actually, um, my colleague and I had... She, she led a, a sort of opinion piece in EOS uh, a few months ago on sort of intelligent use of, of machine learning for geoscience, because I think there are some really important questions you have to ask yourself, or I think there will easily be an abuse of this tool um, and it won't do anything good for the science. So I think in my mind, first and foremost, you have to have science questions you're, you're approaching. Not that, I mean, there are, there's a field called data science out there where it's not about the science, it's actually about the tools themselves. But, but as a climate scientist, if that's your goal, you still need the, the science there to, to back you up. Um, and also, there's no one size fits all. Every problem is different. And that's one of the things I've been finding that's most fun is you don't just have one tool you can apply to everything. You actually have to think about it every time. Um, and that means once again, you need you need to know what it is you're what you're trying to do. Um, so typically, some I have quite a, a strong group of students, many of whom did not have any training in this this area. But because I'm really excited about pushing my group in this direction, they're all quickly you know spinning up. How, how do I learn this? Um, I, I think the first thing is there is so much online already. On you know because of the craze of machine learning, so many blogs written by various people trying to make things as understandable as possible. That I I started I, I think just starting there. You know, set aside time and sort of take your own class and just start 
reading some of the basics. Um, many people take the, the standard Stanford course. There's a Stanford course on Coursera on machine learning, a very famous one that I, everyone that has taken it says it's amazing and it's free. So okay. that's often where I point students first. Um, but, but I think the important thing is, is really the mentality because I, I personally have not, um, let me back up. It is complicated, but I think that in, our students are set up already to, to learn this relatively quickly. They appreciate that no data is perfect, that you have to ask articulate questions or you will get, you won't, you'll get an answer out and you know, won't know what it means. Um, you have to be careful with parameters and robustness. And if you suddenly drop out one data point and your entire, you know, physical explanation has to change, then that's probably not okay. There's probably a problem. You know, all these types of things I think we do already as geoscientists. And that's all good for this. I think the most important thing is the mentality you go in with, which is this is not going to solve all your problems and it is not magic. So if you have really bad data, it's going to give you really bad output. You can't change that really. Um, if you don't have a lot of data, this is not the tool for you. If, if, if you only have 30 points, just fit a line. Don't, don't, <laughs> this is, this is a waste. Um, these tools really need a lot of data. And then the next question is how much is a lot of data? And unfortunately it depends on your problem, but I will say you need probably even more than you think you do. And, and so part of these, the, learning this is not the tools and learning say what a neural network works or how it works or what how, how gradient descent is written out algebraically it's more thinking do i even have the data and the question that are appropriate for these these tools so i'm not really answering your question very practically i'm giving you sort of more of a philosophical view but um i think it's really important that we approach these as just another tool in the toolbox and sometimes they will be relevant and important and useful. And other times they're just not the right tool. Um, and so, and so thinking about it that way, I think it, um, makes it a lot, uh, I guess if we think about it that way, it will set our field up for success um, rather than having a backlash in five years where half the papers use machine learning and, you know, we haven't actually learned anything. Which, Right. Yeah. And it, what you said got me thinking about, so my, my little push into this world has been trying to learn about unsupervised classification and, yeah. you know, that kind of uh, Gaussian mixture modeling mm -hmm. and, Jamie. and uh, I'm, I'm really excited about the possibilities here, but I very much feel like that you know, the, the few of us who've been doing this sort of stuff so far, we are still very much in the phase of trying to figure out okay, what kind of questions can we address with this? Like with what, this in what, the first place, yeah. Yeah, and how do, we, how do we best address that? And how do we deal with the fact that, um, so in, in classification, you know, the, the kind of textbook examples are, oh, well, you have three very different things, and therefore you have clean separation yep. between you know, three different kinds of minerals, for example, and you can say, well, pick your rock sample and then this, classification scheme can tell you how, what percentage of that sample you know comes from this kind of mineral versus that kind of mineral and you get like uncertainties associated with it um, but of course with oceanography and atmospheric science we've got so many correlations all of our data is 
you know, correlated across all these spatial and temporal scales. There's not necessarily like a clean separation, um, but you can still pull out patterns. You can still find these kind of populations living in your data. Um, I don't know if you've, uh, can, can I selfishly ask if, if you've uh, done any or thinking about the kind of unsupervised classification world or yeah, so I've done I've done a little work in that. Um, I teach it in my class, so I'm familiar with it. Just because if I have to teach it, you know, you you learn it really fast. Um, but yeah, I've done a bit of that with um, with a colleague in thinking about clouds and cloud types um, from CloudSat um, observations, and and you know, using in that case k-means or, or self-organizing maps to pull out the different sort of you know classes or shapes of convective features in the tropics. Um, so, so in that sense, I, I've played with it a little bit. Um, I think your point though is, is a very good one that most geoscience, not many geoscience variables are, are sort of these continuous blurred things, right? They, they aren't, that is a cat. We have DNA evidence to say it is a cat and that is a dog. Right. And you do not have half cat, half dogs, you know, at least not yet. Um, and, and in geoscience, it's sort of the opposite. There's no such thing as a pure cat, really. Um, and because of that, I think we need people like you um, saying, all right, before we can do even just answer all the science questions that we have, we need to spend some time. And that time could be years thinking about what this tool is actually doing for us with the type of data we have. And um, this is one of those things I was saying early on that, I was sort of embarrassed that I loved doing that part so much because I felt like, oh, this can't be science. And, and I'm coming around, maybe maybe it's, who knows, maybe it's getting tenure or getting old, I don't know. But but now I'm, I, I'm, I actually want to say the opposite. It's, it's so important there are people out there doing that job because not everybody wants to do it. And at some point, you are going to be able to answer the question, this, this type of problem is actually really good for unsupervised learning. And then all these other colleagues get to go, oh, great, Dan did the hard work, so now we can use it. Um, and, and so sometimes my students get a little down because, you know, you, you, you talk to people that got their PhDs 30 years ago, and the mindset is, you know, what is your physical hypothesis? Write down your three dynamical equations and do a little bit of data analysis. And and they feel a little down that they're the types of things they're doing and their contributions don't look anything like that. But but I think the feedback we've been getting, at least over the last two years from the field, is that people are craving this this information and they're so appreciative that there are people like us that uh, think it's fun. Um so that that's that's my mindset on that. But as you can see, I still struggle with it a little bit. Um, you know, okay, this is science. And, you know, this this is science, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad to hear you, hear you say that. Yeah, that, that kind of um, is encouraging for me to hear because I can really relate to the idea of I keep finding myself kind of focusing on the tools and focusing on the like, oh, what can I do with this? What can I do with uh, this kind of numerical model or, you know, yeah. doing adjoint modeling stuff. I'm like, what can Perfect. I do with Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it's, it's uh, and I, I run into exactly that same dilemma that you're talking about where you almost feel guilty. You're like, I know, I know, I should start with the science questions yep. and ask. But I think, I think in reality, there are so many tools out there and we, we can't possibly master all of them and we can't possibly all have them. 
have them all at our disposal all the time. So in reality, it's going to be iterative, isn't it? It's going to be, yep. let me let me iterate between what science questions can I ask and what tools do I have in front of me that I feel like I could use reasonably soon without like another five years of work of learning. <laughs> of learning the, right. The tool. You have and to kind of iterate, like, where, where can I make a contribution? And that iteration may be within you, one human, but that iteration could also be over multiple colleagues. It could be that some of us take more of the role of, you know, we're going to make these tools easily accessible and understandable, so you don't need to take five years to do it. And then these other colleagues saying, oh, good, I didn't want to take five years. I really have the science question I need to ask. And I think, you know, your tool or this tool is the right one for the job based on your work. So that iteration, it may be over, you know, a department or a group or, you know, a collaboration rather than an individual even. Um, and I will say the reason this is so different, this is truly different. It's not, this isn't a problem that's been around for for a hundred years because it's at least, I mean, in, in atmospheric science, we didn't have enough data to even be thinking about these things. <laughs> Right. When you have five data points, don't even, you know, plot it, but don't try and don't take an average. Just show the data. Right. I always joke with students. If you have three data points, don't try to draw error bars, you know, on the uh, across the three, just plot the three. Um, But now when we have three million, now there is really more than ever a place for for people to help think about these tools. And I will say, I don't have great examples, but one of the things my dad, who who got his claim to fame in his field, was he said he wasn't a particularly great applied mathematician, but what he was really good at was reading the literature from other fields and having aha moments when he found methods and tools that could actually be applied to his field. And I think there's something there. We don't all have to come up with these tools. It, you know, the world has so many brilliant people doing so many brilliant things that we can't possibly all keep track of or have the knowledge base to understand that sometimes your contribution could be reaching across, you know, into somebody else's domain or field into the you know electrical engineering world, for example, and pulling back spectral or Fourier analysis, which is something we use all the time now. Um, and so I think I, I think there's a place for that, too. Absolutely. That's been happening here in, in Cambridge. We're lucky enough to have um, have have had some of the, and still, still do, have some of the experts in Gaussian processes mm-hmm. approach. And, um, you know, they've been over at the engineering department doing this stuff for a while. And it's only been in the last f- four or five years or so that we've really started to have a, an active conversation with them in, in terms of like, well, can you can you teach us Gaussian processes so we can give it a try on our climate data? That's perfect. That's yeah, starting to, to kick off, and it's a uh, that, that's that looks like a promising method because you can you can build a kind of re- regressive model, but you can also get nice uncertainties out of it as well. Which is um, a big thing, right? Well, a big thing right now, even with all types of sort of this data science, is give me some uncertainties, right? Yeah. Um, so that's one of the attractive things about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. You, you do have to have good prior information, good prior guesses as to what the function looks like. But, and that's where your physics is coming in. Exactly. I mean, it's, as I said, like, I think we're becoming more, even more important, not obsolete. At least that's, I, I'm very, people have said I'm very optimistic about the, all this, but I, and I am, but I'm, I'm just so excited. I'm having so much fun. Uh, that's good. So, that's yeah. really Sounds like you are too. 
I am. I will admit, since we're talking about it, and I, I am excited about it, I do sometimes get, get to, when I'm really trying to drill into it and really trying to learn, you know, this this new Python package and, uh-huh. and this new, and I'm trying to read blog posts and I'm reading documentation and I'm thinking about how to, can I make a contribution to this repository? I do sometimes feel like my brain's overheating. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because you're, like, t- you're learning a new, you're in essence getting a new degree. Right. You know, it's, it's really fast, really <laughs> fast with the stress of, you know, the way our system works of publications or whatever deliverables on top of your shoulders. Um, and I think that's the one thing I also feel is I, I do, the system isn't set up this way and I'm not trying to berate the system because I don't have a better solution for you at the moment, but I feel like it to truly have made, make the bit, the best contribution I can to my field of climate, you know, and atmospheric variability. I feel like it would be best if I could take, you know, three years and go and go and sit in a bunch of classes and read a lot of, of blog posts and, and play with Python and then come back in three years with zero publications. But finally, that, you know, really strong knowledge base. Um, but that's just not really the way the world works, um, at least academia at the moment. Um, and so you, there's always this slight the concern of I mean, sometimes more than slight of, okay, well, if I take the time to learn this new thing, is that going to set me behind for, you know, sort of what's expected? Um, and again, I will say my department is very supportive. This is sort of self-imposed here. No one's telling me, I know, you know, come on, Barnes, hurry it up. But um, I do, I, I think part of it is is taking a deep breath and saying, you know, 2020 may not look like 2017 did, but when I do go and make a contribution, it, it it's actually, you know, people are going to be able to use it. Um, and so I, I, that's what I tell myself at least. Yeah. And that, that would be awesome. You know, you can imagine, and these days a contribution could look a lot different than yes. a, couple of decades ago. a couple of decades ago. A contribution might be, well, here's, here's a neat paper with some figures that, you know, that if you want to, you can, you can copy my figure and put it in your talk and, and point to it. Yep. But these days the contribution might be, here, I've trained an unsupervised learning model, you know, on all the Argo data. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a Jupyter notebook. I hope you can use it. Yep. Go, go to your data and hopefully that can help you find something interesting in, in the kind of profile that you're looking at. Um, so, and, and, you know, in your case, it could be, yeah, here's, here's our uh, neural network model and here's, we, we've trained it in this way and uh, here's how you pull out the patterns the kind of significance patterns and uh, that's you know we're in a world where there's a lot more sharing of data sharing of code and sharing of methods it's all uh, opening up and we're we're learning how to do it we're not perfect at it yet but you know we're learning how to make it more open to where we can use it and that that will it will do both of those things you were just talking about it will accelerate science which is great and amazing but it is also it does make it hard to keep up with like if the pace just keeps accelerating like yep. as a, an individual talking about your you know my brain overheating i'm yep. like oh it's gonna it's gonna take off into the stratosphere and i'm gonna have to like really run to keep up. right yeah that part i don't have an answer for either sadly yeah i don't i don't know i mean it was already hard enough to keep track of all the climate 
publications coming out. Now I'm supposed to keep track of all the data repositories and new code and oh, the entire computer science community on machine learning. Like, okay, this is getting absurd, right? Um, Are I we think have to narrow, narrow in. We're gonna have to like really focus in. Even yeah, more. I. You maybe someday, but not yet. And that's what I'm having. That's why I'm enjoying this. Is I feel like most of the fruit right now is pretty low, mm. because our community wants to learn, but they don't know what they're supposed to learn yet. And so one of the things I, I am so excited with my group is where I hope to make a contribution is helping steer, at least in a tiny part, the community to help them think about some of the things that are worth knowing, if you will. Um, yeah. Trying to show them one of the many tools in this toolbox. And someday those that will be sort of um, saturated and it will, maybe I'll have to do something else, but right now it isn't. So I'm going to enjoy it while it lasts. Uh, the toolbox might converge at some point. Yeah. And you know, it, it might go from, you know, one question is, are we likely to see big changes in a field versus incremental adjustments? And I think you're certainly right that in terms of the tools, we're seeing big changes right now and, and very rapid advancements because we haven't done this stuff before. Mm -hmm. but yet. It, it seems logical that it will converge. It will start to calm down, and the the Microsoft Office or whatever of whatever machine learning method we're talking about will slowly start to emerge, and it will yep. be well. That's that's the thing you use. You that's use the thing, thing we know. Yeah. Yeah. And exactly when I so when I got my PhD, um, I was at the University of Washington, and Mike Wallace, as I, I was leaving, he was on my committee, and he said, "You know, Libby, I feel bad for you and your your colleagues." And I was like, "What?" And he said. So back when I was, you know, sort of a young scientist, any plot I made with any data, no one had ever made before. And I started laughing because, you know, half of your PhD these days is just trying to find a plot that nobody's made before, I feel like. Um, and he's like, it was, and, and not that he wasn't brilliant, but he sort of said, you know, it was so easy in that sense to be novel and new and contribute. And now a big struggle is figuring out how do I contribute? And And so in that way, that was the world of observations. And we've now seen that some, I mean, there are huge, there are still big steps being made in that world, but generally we have an idea of what, you know, the global climate oscillations or patterns look like. We know how to calculate them. We've sort of triangulated on how to do that. And I think just, yeah, as you said, right now with the tools, we're at the beginning and at some point it will level out, but we're not there yet. So let's, let's enjoy the ride, I guess. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we started this conversation talking about, you know, transparency and talking about um, kind of being a little more open with you know, right. what our lives they look like, which is part of like, in that spirit, that's kind of why I wanted to say that, yes, I am two things in terms of, you know, how, how machine learning is going to change our field. Like, I'm really excited and really uh, I, feel really, I feel really motivated to be a part of it and to get my head around all this and to contribute what I can. And I'm also I'm also a bit terrified because it's just going so quickly. Totally, it's going to be really hard to, for me to keep up with. So it's a little little anticipation and excitement and a little um, like oh gosh, <laughs> yeah, what am I doing? Yeah, and I think yeah. I will say I will say, and this is not trying to minimize that. I agree with you completely. Um, but if you, and, and so I'll see students say, well, I want to become a, an expert on machine learning for climate. And I'm going, well, good luck. You know, that's like saying I want to understand all of physics. Um, 
really that's where I think starting with the science or do having that degree in the science is really great because what it says is you can always come back to your science question that is somehow is societally or, you know, whatever is motivating you important to answer. And then you don't feel like you have to keep track of all of the advances in machine learning. You just need to find the tool that helps you answer your question. And it could be there were 10 tools out there that all fell into the AI machine learning category, but you don't need all 10. That's not your job. Your job is to answer your question. And it could be just one of those was, was sufficient. Um, mm-hmm. And that helps me stay calm when all these, you know, units and, you know, convolutional neural networks and uh, adversarial networks and all these. And I start stressing out about, oh, okay, what are all these again? And it's like, wait, the simple one I'm using is doing the job. And at the moment, it's okay then to keep using it. Um, and, and I'll keep up with that other literature when the time comes. Um, so that that's how I've been getting a little bit around that. But if you went in just saying, I need to be an expert on all machine learning, I think you're... <laughs> I, I think that would be overwhelming on day two. Oh yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's uh, good to keep an eye out for it. You can also listen a little bit, I think to just what interests you, you know, if you have that flexibility, you know, just yep. kind of what, what catches your eye. We can, we, we are allowed to be a little bit subjective in our choice of like, what do I want to work on? Sometimes that mm-hmm. it does need to be scientifically interesting and relevant, but we can allow ourselves that flexibility to be a little bit subjective and say, well, I just kind of find this sort of thing more interesting than this other thing. Like uh, I've got a friend who is, is moving from one place to another and uh, he was working on kind of big, you know, model intercomparison projects. And he was kind of near the end of that realized um, he said, well, this is fine. I'm glad there are people doing it, but he's like, but it's not really getting me excited. I want to move mm-hmm. back, to, you know, doing, the kind of science that I connect with that really gets me motivated because then I'll do my best work to connect back to something you said, you know, when mm-hmm. you're happy, you do better work. When you're, when you're feeling fulfilled and happy, you do better science. So it, it matters. That stuff matters. It does. And aren't we lucky to have uh, fortunate, lucky, whatever word you want to say that to, to be able to have jobs that allow that freedom. I, I just, I, I think this every day. Wow. Yeah. You know, I don't love my job a hundred percent of days but I love it a very high fraction of the days. And that's pretty amazing. It's crazy. We're, we're so lucky to have that. It's a, it is a real, a real privilege. Absolutely. Yes, it is it's important to keep that in mind. Do you, um, I, I don't want to artificially close this up here, but yeah. I kind of want to be mindful of your, your, your time. And, Oh, sure. You know, I, I, uh, I sometimes ask questions near the end, like um, what's something that you've learned about science and it, it can just be, I kind of call it the, the, the short answer around or, okay. kind of, you know, it's, so if you had like a short takeaway for what's something you've learned about science that you didn't know before you got involved with science. Oh, something you um, learned. Oh, maybe that's hard for you. Cause it's kind of been around you your whole, yeah, your whole maybe that's tricky. Um, okay. I think, I, I think that, I, I mean, I guess I could take from this conversation, the thing I learned from, about science is that science comes in many forms, right? And and the I, I, I will say something I learned about myself in science is there are some people that like to ask one question their whole careers and really dig into it. And that is what many people think is science or being a scientist. And I've come to learn that that's not me. 
I, I like to ask a lot of questions every day and that, that I, you can still be an expert at that too. And so in that sense, I guess my answer is not so much about science, but what it means to be a scientist. And I've, I've figured that out about myself. And I think that's an important thing any aspiring scientist wants to try and learn about themselves because it really helps you navigate the, you know, the future careers and, and what, what will fulfill you, you know, when, when, when you have 137 bugs in your code, what keeps you, what keeps you working on that? Yeah. I like that answer, that kind of know yourself perspective. Yeah. Kind of over time getting to know what motivates you and um, your work style and the, the kind of question, the kind of approach that you find interesting. And that there and there there is more than one way to do it. Right. That there is a diversity of, of approaches there. Um, and that's, you know, on science Twitter, I've been fortunate, like to be exposed to a lot of kind of more diverse voices in science mm -hmm. that might normally be in my kind of everyday life. And so that's been, that's been good to see those and think about those because like having those diverse voices gives you even more of that flavor, right? Of like, there's lots of different ways to do science and to be a, a scientific person and to, to, to kind of use that set of tools and approaches to understand the world and you know people from very different backgrounds and very different experiences can can you know they like anybody who you know wants to do it and has the capacity to do it should be able to right there shouldn't be any artificial barriers right I, all i mean is we need some more inclusion <laughs> and some yeah. diversity well that is very true yes that's really all i'm that's really all i'm getting at What's, uh, what's something you've learned about um, supervising? Maybe you've kind of already said it at the beginning, but... Um, oh, I'm still learning so much about supervising. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's something I've learned? Um, I have learned that... even So you're going to often hear from everybody, including me, Every everybody you supervise requires something different. Um, and part of the hard part about supervising is really figuring out what that is that everybody needs and having them be a part of that, you know, helping figure that out. I think one of the things I've been really appreciating the last few years, though, is that I do my best supervising when I allow, in this case, say a student, when I allow them to sort of tell, um, be in charge of it themselves. Um, yeah. So instead of telling them what to do, you know, asking them what they think they should do, they tend to have a much better answer than I did. Um, and so I, I've, and I honestly, I, this is really silly, but I think I got this, I, I figured this out because I have a five-year-old who is incredibly strong-willed and stubborn. And the second you tell him to do every anything, he will, he, you know, put up the wall and refuse. And so as a mom, I started figuring out that I needed him to come to the conclusion of what he needed to do. And then life was good. Um, and, and in a way I realized, well, hold on, why am I treating my five-year-old like this, but then telling my, my graduate students what to do, you know, or, Hey, I think you should change the title or, you know, small things, of course, I, I don't mean, boss, you know, per se bossing them around here, but, um, and I think I've become a much better advisor listening to what they think they need, um, or, or even scientifically, you know, okay, given this result, what, what do you think we should do next? And really listening rather than just making it a, a philosophical exercise. Making it conversational. Like yeah. That. Yeah. And I think I still have, you know, obviously I tell my students all the time, I'm 
I'm improving every day, but this is something I'm so passionate about that I really want to learn to do this better. Yeah, that's awesome. What's um, what's something you learned about uh, writing? It's so hard. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I will say, so as a graduate student, I hated writing. I hated it so much. Oh, man. And my advisor said, wow, Libby, because I told him this and he said, wow, I really hope that gets better for you because a lot of our job is writing. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, you know, six and a half years into my faculty position, I hate writing just as much as I ever have. So (laughs) uh, it hasn't gotten easier, I don't think. Uh, I think I've gotten better, maybe, but. To give you some encouragement, I mean, on this podcast, I've asked that question to a lot of people and I get very, very different answers. You know, okay. I, get the, I get the whole spectrum of answers. Yeah. From, you know, some people love it. It's their favorite part. They can't wait to write. And some people really dread it and just really wish they could do something else. And so it's... I, I fall into that category. Yeah. So speaking of diversity, I mean, that is that is a dimension of diversity of not everybody likes writing and not everybody no. actually really wants to do it. Right. Um, yeah. So that, that's that's encouraging in that way of like it can be a big tent right we can ideally we can all be yep and i love the storytelling part that's why i actually love making and giving talks i love that but you know notice it's mostly in pictures and with my words out loud you know the second you then say okay just make your talk into a paper for some reason my brain goes blank it's like you would prefer to just say can i just record a talk and send it yep. to you every time and maybe someday right we'll live in the world of harry potter where our journals will just be you know audio or videos with with movies of of our science oh i'll I'll thrive then but um yeah right now it's pretty painful just pick up an ipad and play a paper yeah exactly somebody walking you through the paper oh it'd be Uh, so fun yeah i'll do that sign me up so then things will get even faster then i know (laughs) <laughs> I know. And then you can't, how do you skip to just, how do you, you know, a lot of people skip the method section. I typically skip to the method section, but you know, how do you, how do you do that? You know? Um, yeah. Well, well how, how are you feeling? Is there anything else you want to talk about? I think I, I had it. I didn't know exactly where you're going to go. I think that, so um, in the end though, what I really wanted to talk about is what we did, which is that about more of machine learning and data science in our field and how excited I am. So that's what I really wanted to, to touch base with you on and that's what we talked about so i'm i'm good unless there are specific things but it doesn't sound like you have anything else i mean we've already been chatting for quite a while um yeah this has been excellent this has been really awesome i've really enjoyed it i think we got a lot of good a lot of good we had a really good conversation and to me that's the point of doing these (laughs) it's like that's awesome try to have a good conversation and then um I've, i've talked about it on here before but like I just I noticed that was the kind of podcast I was really enjoying listening to, and so I said, well, oh, let, me just, "Let me just try oh, to do that." Yeah, because you've been doing this for a while. I, you've gotten quite a few pretty amazing people to do this with you. This is great. It's been really good. Yeah, it's been it's been uh, really rewarding, and people seem to be enjoying it and and listening. So um, I I've struggled to keep up every two weeks, but I think I yeah, can manage. A- one a month i think i was gonna say yeah every two weeks i the only other time i've done this i did one with michael white and i Mm. and and he it sounded like i think if i recall he was more of a once a month kind of guy like otherwise because it takes time and you probably have to cut stuff and mess around with it i mean it takes your time right um yeah 
Yeah, I don't, I don't do a ton of cutting. Ton of editing. Oh, that's nice. Good. Save your time. Yeah, and it's that's the style I like anyway. So that's okay. Yeah. Good. But it's uh, it does take some time to you know finally put the episode together and kind yeah, of exactly produce it and um, the, the little bit of producing that I do. Well, uh, Libby, thanks so much. This was yeah, great. of course. Yes, thank you again. And let me know when it, if you, if you don't mind it, sending me an email when it's up, um, just so I can advertise a little bit too, or to my it'll, students. They like to sit and, and laugh at me sometimes. Be, <laughs> it's, it's good. Yeah. February, February probably. Looking at Perfect. A couple others that are in the can. So Feb, February is the likely kind of release month. Um, Perfect. Yeah. And do, All do right. you want, you ever go to the climate informatics meetings? I do. Yeah, I do. There's one in Oxford next year. Ah, um, okay. Yeah, I've one. been to the ones in Boulder recently. I mean, obviously the last few years. Um, but yeah, okay. Good to know. I mean, as you said, there's so many things nowadays on data analysis, data science, machine learning. That's like, how do you go to all of them? But the climate informatics I have been going to um, the last few years. Cool. Well, I'll probably go to the Oxford one. Maybe. Okay, cool. So if I'm there, I'll finally get to say hi. Yeah, that would be cool, and it would be it would be great to um, if we get the chance at some point to talk. I mean, we talked a lot about science here, but you know, um, for me to selfishly show you my stuff and get your yeah, thoughts. totally. <laughs> no, absolutely, that'd be great. Especially since I mean, ultimately, we're thinking generally about tools, which is what I love to nerd out about anyway. Ah, that would be awesome. Okay, yeah, I'll look. I'll look forward to that. I don't know when it's happening, but I'll look forward to that. It's perfect. <laughs> Alrighty, Dan, thank you. Thanks, Libby. Talk to you later. Okay. Yeah, bye. Bye. There you have it. My conversation with Libby Barnes. You can find her on Twitter at Atmos Barnes, like I mentioned in the introduction. That's A-T-M-O-S Barnes. I'm on Twitter at Dan Jones Ocean. And for updates on the podcast, you can follow at ClimateSciPod on Twitter as well. I'm still on a monthly schedule, so I'm trying to get these out about one a month here at Ocean Sciences. I'm going to try to record at least one, at least one conversation, maybe more, if I can find people who are, you know, interested in doing it, you know, here at the convention center in the media space. So good. Yeah. Well, take care of yourself. Hope that uh, things are going all right for you. And please do feel free to send feedback on the podcast. It's really nice to get the, the emails that I've been getting uh, with suggestions for potential guests and things that you all, the listeners, would like to hear in the future. I had a really interesting suggestion about, you know, we want to hear some stories from people who uh, maybe their PhD experience wasn't that great because, uh, you know, right now on the podcast, it's mostly people who are pretty, pretty happy with their experience, right? People might be more comfortable sharing that anonymously. So yeah, I'll have a think about how to best do that and how to best approach that in the future, but it's a great suggestion. Okay, thanks very much. Take care. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.